what you really need is for each member of your rapid response team to carry with them a laminated credit card size crisis plan. Here it is. When you're activated, here's where you go, how you call in. From there on, honestly, it's going to be about judgment and experience and the capability in the room. The word crisis is not a stressful word. I don't know what is. Then think of crisis communications and I start getting sweaty armpits. In this episode, I met up with Jeff Hahn, who comes to the table with 30 plus years of crisis communication experience. His experience dates back to his first 15 years with tech giant Motorola and learning the ropes of what's important to each stakeholder. Times have changed since then. Jeff traded corporate world for agency world, and now he teaches brands large and small how to have in place even the simplest crisis communication plans. In this episode, learn what every brand needs to have in place, and it's actually pretty basic, yet most brands, yet most brands overlook the simple checklist that Jeff shares with us. We'll talk about things like the state of crisis communication, recipes for disaster when it comes to PR, something Jeff invented called the Cassandra calculator, and examples of rapid response do's and don'ts when it comes to crisis communication. We also touch on topics such as online newsrooms, social newsrooms, and how to leverage promotional communications to get better practice for your crisis communications. Let's welcome Jeff. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Good to be with you, Lisa. Doing great. Yes. As, as I was saying before we hit record, I'm very excited because I believe that you are my first crisis communication expert to interview on Social PR Secrets. I think there's probably a reason for that. We're sort of strange people. Well, I can tell you that crisis communication, just the two words make me stressed out. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like being in PR, you don't have to specialize in crisis communication to have it happen, you know, here and there. So it could be anything from, you know, a bad review to something as serious as the Surfside condo collapsing and, you know, you're the city of Surfside and what do you do? But you have 30 years of experience in crisis communication and PR. So I'm just going to guess that you were around pre-digital and saw Google and Facebook and social come into play in PR and opened up a whole new world for brands and for the PR industry like it did for me. So if you could just kind of you know, kind of take us through your journey of how you started in PR and crisis communications and some, some of the things that you've witnessed changing and, and what brought you to today. Oh, for sure. And thank you for letting me give a little bit of the background. I came into the industry or into the craft is a better way to say it. When I started with Motorola in the semiconductor business and at Motorola, I was a corporate communications guy exposed to a variety of different pressures on the corporation. I learned back then that there is this thing called stakeholders and community people are stakeholders and activists are stakeholders, regulators and policymakers, all stakeholders, employees. And it was there in the semiconductor business where I really began to appreciate the various perspectives of those stakeholders and their requirements for a brand. I mean, I came into the business thinking, oh, this is a giant corporation. No one could ever say anything bad about it. Makes all these jobs possible, et cetera. Makes these cool products. 
But then I uh, came to appreciate and learn that no, there's um, a variety of perspectives that surround a brand. And the riskier that a brand uh, position is, the more the louder the voices are. And in the semiconductor business, for example, some of the worst, nastiest chemicals known to mankind are used in the manufacture of, of computer chips. And so at the facilities that I worked, we had those tanks full of sulfuric acid, for example. And right across the fence line, here are homes, people with children, not more than 200 yards away from these tanks that if there was a catastrophic release, there would just be a terrible consequence. And so I really began to appreciate the need for stakeholder connection for a brand. And then of course, the I became acutely aware of the craft of crisis communication to help tell a story for a brand that faces risk and sometimes finds itself in a risky place from a reputation standpoint. I spent 15 years at Motorola in the semiconductor business and now more than 15 years in the agency side where I've done consulting for lots of food brands and a variety of other entities that have faced everything from fatalities to multi-million dollar projects facing delays and challenges in the business plan to lawsuits and even legal actions that's been, that have wound up in court. So I've been in this brand reputation game for quite some time. And I think at the core of it, I still am very respectful of that stakeholder orientation. And I I'm going to guess that being with Motorola for 15 years, that, that, you know, being in that tech, you know, tech industry emerging with merging with the digital industry and the internet and, you know, things that kind of were bubbling up probably while you were at Motorola that put you even more in the forefront of crisis communication. I'm just going to say risk potential because you're combining tech and the internet in its early stages. And you're probably like, whoa, all of these new things can happen now that used to not be able to happen so quickly. So can you kind of take us through some of um, you know, what we're facing now with brands when it, whether you're Motorola or just a startup tech company or even a health and wellness brand that's starting up and you know, what are some of the, the risks that you see that brands overlook large and small and maybe some recipes for PR disaster that you might have in your in your crisis communication cookbook? <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's a great question. And I think uh, one of the most overlooked attributes of any brand, what they overlook in my field of play is their risk exposure. We all can we all have and carry with us these biases that, oh, it'll never happen to us. And, oh, there's the odds of something going wrong are astronomical. I'm too busy to think about it. And so that to ignore risk is to open the door to peril on your side. It's kind of like having insurance, isn't it? Uh, you can drive a car or own a house without it, but not a great idea if in fact uh, the day comes when something goes really wrong. And so I think the easiest thing to do is ignore risk. And I've devised a tool called the Cassandra Calculator to help try to put at least some 
predictive capability into a brand risk. But I have to tell you something interesting. I've used this tool dozens and dozens of times with those brands who are interested, but I've also encountered a few times brands and brand managers who wanted nothing to do with this tool to predict risk and predict their vulnerabilities. They just didn't want to know. And it was one of the most fascinating, continues to be one of the most fascinating aspects of human nature and of brand management to me that people wouldn't want to go through the time to at least inventory their risk characteristics or their vulnerabilities. I kind of like to say it that if you don't have a plan, that is your plan, right? It's a decision. That's a, that's a conscious decision to not have a, a plan, whether it's a crisis communication plan or any type of plan. And I see the same thing with my clients and I don't specialize in crisis communication, but just even the steps of, okay, if something does happen more along the lines of social media issues or customer, you know, bad customer reviews, things like that, that probably on, you know, if you had a big spectrum, you know, you have a spectrum of different types of crisis communications, but even, even for those types of, okay, what happens, you know, what's the chain of command? What's the, you know, who do you call before you post type of thing? Like there's most brands, large and small, even public companies don't have that type of infrastructure in place. So what do you say to that? And what advice do you give? Well, you've pinpointed one of the most important aspects of the way I think about crisis communication. And it's if you were to ask me the question, what's the number one way that brands fail? It's not just in predicting or assessing their risk, but in preparing their teams. Brand after brand, client after client, they fail miserably on team readiness. And I think about that as every brand should have a rapid response team doesn't have to be the CEO, especially if the CEO isn't very good at this kind of thing. It does need to be a group of people, though, that can sit in a room and think through a very difficult, very high-stress situation. And you created some good examples in your question. Let's just say that you got a terrible, you're a restaurant and you got a terrible internet review, a Yelp review that's just scaring uh, customers away. You need a group of people who can sit at that table and work your way through the challenge, the refutation, if it's misinformation, and then the response. So I always count team readiness as the number one issue where it's not hard to get ready, but it's the one that most brands forget. And I'll add one more thought to that. When we think about team readiness, It's not about the fact that I've been trained in crisis for years and I know what to do every time. It's simple things like, what conference room do we go to when there's a problem? What phone number should we call into? Or what Zoom channel should we get on? That's what brands don't have. And so when the crisis hits, when their bad news breaks, they lose precious, precious time just trying to get together. And getting organized, right? Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's just sort of mind boggling to me that, that a brand can be that disorganized or dismissive of the fundamentals, but I see it more. I see it all the time. 
it almost seems like I was going to ask you who owns crisis communication? You know, is it the CMO? Is it a special committee? And it seems like from what you're saying, it really needs to be almost a special committee that's made up of different representatives from, from the brand and maybe even, maybe it's even, you know, advisors that aren't even internally part of the brand, but that can be, you know, if something happens like, look, we're going to call on you and you're, that person has already said, okay, I'll, I'll be your go-to person for this, you know, particular topic with, within the crisis communication plan. Is that, is that accurate? For sure. Oh, you got it really, I think, perfectly right. The, my favorite configuration of rapid response team isn't composed of the usual suspects, like a CMO or CEO. Instead, the, the way that I label them at the table is chief decision maker, deputy chief decision maker, because <laughs> here's one of the other inevitable things that happens. The chief decision makers on a plane or hiking in the mountains when something bad goes wrong. So <laughs> you, you always need a number two that is designated for that role. Then some specialists. A communication specialist is really helpful. A legal specialist, very helpful. And then subject matter experts. And as you indicate, you might have in your probability set of risks, safety risks, emergencies, reputation risks. So you may have a dozen or more subject matter experts, but on any given day for any given problem, you only need one or two of them. You assemble that team as needed, but everyone knows that where to go, that they're on the team, number one, and then uh, where to go and how to meet. And it seems like this should just be like a one or two page guidebook of like, this is this is our cheat sheet for crisis communication. And this isn't like the plan, but this is at least the infrastructure. Is that what you call it? I'm with you completely. In fact, I would say to it, to your listeners, if they're familiar with historic crisis communication plan preparation, these are three ring binders that I think when you buy them at the Office Depot, they actually come pre-dusty because they <laughs> sit on a shelf, they gather nothing but dust, no one ever looks at them again. What you really need is for each member of your rapid response team to carry with them a laminated credit card size crisis plan. Here it is. When you're activated, here's where you go, how you call in. From there on, honestly, it's going to be about judgment and experience and the capability in the room. It's awful nice to have a lot of preset messages, but most of the time, I think the what a rapid response team really needs is a way to assemble and then a method through which to move through the crisis. And that's what my book, Breaking Bad News, describes, is that method. So talk to us about your book and maybe some highlights that you want to pull from that that we can glean some actionable insights from. Right. In that model, and I think this is really important, especially given your expertise and work, the first and most important dimension of the model that I have created is the idea of speed. And in the world and age of internet and social media, speed matters almost more than any other attribute. So assembling quickly is the first component of a five-step process that I take readers through as I design my model. The second big component is really to 
speak early, ambiguously, <laughs> ambiguously, that's the way to say it, meaning issue what is known as a holding statement so that your stakeholders understand you know what's going on, you are examining the issue, you've got hold of the problem, and you work. And from there, once you activate and uh, issue your holding statement, then you've got the three M's of my model. The first is message. What's your message going to be? Are you accepting blame? Are you not going to accept blame? What's the culpability in a particular situation? The second M in my three M's is messenger. Who's going to be the spokesperson? Oftentimes you hear people say at this juncture, well, we need to get the CEO at a press conference to issue an apology. Now, in my view, in my experience, those are the three worst decisions you could possibly make in a crisis situation. CEO needs to be in management mode, not spokesperson mode. Press conference, that's a method. And it's the most out of control method that you could possibly <laughs> choose. There are so many other good options. And I, I in the tool that I create in, that's my third M, the method of outreach. I show you the 12 options that you have in terms of outreach. So message, messenger, and method of outreach complete the five-step process in the model I've created. So let's talk about the method and the, you, know, you noted that the press conference is the most out of control method, which used to be one of the only methods, right? Before sure. we have all these options now, which I love. And that's why I had um, created a new love for PR once SEO and digital and social became part of our wheelhouse because we now have more control than ever, which is a good thing because we can now be the journalists. We don't have to rely on the journalists. Oh, perfectly uh, said, perfectly said. Absolutely right. Yeah. Hello? Oh, wait, is this thing on? Hi, it's Lisa Beyer. I just wanted to tell you really quick, I'm launching a course called Modern PR Secrets, and I wanted you to be the first to know. You can check it out at thebeyergroup.com under resources. Now let's get back to this interview. So I'd love your take on why the press conference is so out of control and what are some of your go-tos or examples? Yeah, well, I think about method on a two-by-two two chart. So on the, on the y-axis, I put the word control. On the x-axis, I put the word authenticity. Now, press conferences are very low control. They're live events. You have reporters shouting questions at a, a single individual. That single individual may be very good and fast on their feet, but that is a trained skill. I, I don't know any of us that are born really, really clever and almost like a politician, naturally capable of defending a brand in the heat of the moment when you're getting yelled at by angry reporters who feel like they're you know, defending the world against all the evil that you create. So in press conferences, while they're very authentic, the authenticity can turn against you because you can say something wrong, you can't take it back. You can look sweaty, you can't, <laughs> you can't cool down fast enough. And so yes, a valid option at the right time and the, with the right planning, absolutely. On the other end of the spectrum, though, uh, just as bad. One of the high control 
but low authenticity characteristics or methods that, that brands use is no comment. In my mind, it's just as bad as a reputation management tool, that selection can be devastating. But you'll often hear lawyers choose that because they'll say, we're going to prove our case in a court of law. What they forget is that brands and reputations live in the court of public opinion. I mean, each of us has a brand, but none of us owns our brand. Everyone else around us, our stakeholders own those brands. And so no comment helps nothing. It just closes us off to our, the people that we need to speak to the most. Where I think social media and your craft especially have become super valuable is that you, you absolutely hit it. You said, we can be our own reporters. And that's where social can be super powerful. I often think now um, that if a brand can establish its own digital newsroom, it can control the narrative. And that is a great and very effective method of maintaining both control and authenticity. So I think about social media and bending it into a digital newsroom, man, that's a great choice if you've got the capability to do that. So I love the concept of the digital newsroom or the social newsroom for a brand and have been advocating it, you know, for more than 10 years, even before, you know, it, before we've had all of these options to do Facebook Live and to do all of these, you know, live sessions across multiple channels at once type of thing. And I, I think that it's just shocking how underutilized a social newsroom is to a brand of any size. I mean, I, I, I'm constantly analyzing brands newsroom or press room and there's different you know, names that we can call it, but it's just shocking at how much they don't really leverage that opportunity to house all of their media in one place and be the media and be, be their own reporter and be their own journalist when we have more tools and, than ever to integrate it and embed everything together and make it beautiful. Oh, not, I could not agree more. I mean, and you can track it too. I mean, just what, especially engineering type cultures want the most, they want metrics, they want measurements. And through the work you do and the way you do it, you can deliver that. It doesn't have to be a hunch. It doesn't have to be a gut feeling. And it is really frustrating to meet resistance from brands who would benefit so much from a digital newsroom, in particular with that variable of speed. I think about my methods and I move myself back up into the control range on my two by two control and authenticity. And I think, well, geez, why don't we shoot our own video and ask the subject matter expert or even the CEO if it's appropriate of her opinion of the way things are going and what happened here and what would you like to say to people? Shoot your own video, put it out on your own social. That's high control, but people at least see a talking head, someone who can empathize, someone they can believe, someone they might trust, but at least you've got some humanness to that outreach rather than a press release that says nothing. Right. And also, it, I think it also gives the media, the journalists, the tools 
available to easily, you know, maybe get a copy of that video, use a clip of that video without having to go through the, the trouble of, you know, setting up their own interview and, or creating their own type of asset. You're giving it to them and they're, or they're at least saying, okay, this person is going to be pretty good on camera and we'll interview this person. But, and also it's giving you the opportunity to get your message out there. Like you said, the quickest, because the first with the message is always going to dominate, right? As no question about it. And that's the, that when I take clients through my own methodology, I say, you're in a TikTok box. You've got 120 minutes to get this done. And with a three to five minute video, five minutes is a lot, but yeah. with a three minute video edited and released on social channels, you establish control of the narrative. You are now the official voice. And you're exactly right, Lisa. Reporters and news outlets will use it because they're not getting anything else from you. Exactly, exactly. And then just to add on top of that, what I love about it is that it now helps your exposure in Google and social where you're, you're controlling the message and you're influencing search results and you're able to also influence you know, people sharing and, and finding you on social and all of that together is so beautiful and there's so much opportunity. And again, it's just the brands that get it are light years ahead of their competition. Yep, absolutely right. And it doesn't have to be an unpracticed skill. You can use this same set of techniques on the promotional side of your marketing activity. Get good at doing it there when it comes to the protection side of your brand. It's you, you know how to do that. That's a great point. I love that. So can we talk about that for a couple of minutes? Like what brands can do that's not crisis communication that will prepare them to be able to just make it, you know, like it's second nature when it does come to crisis communication. Oh, for sure. And I think some of the, the things that we've already talked about pertain to the creation and release of promotional content. For example, who are the decision makers? Who are the approvers of message? Who are the spokespeople? or the faces for the brand that can be effective messengers. <laughs> You'll know on the promotion side whether or not you want your CEO's face out there. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe there are more effective spokespeople for you. And so you can think about all of these things in a promotional mindset and then port them directly over when the spaghetti hits the fan on a, on a protection issue and a reputation problem. But I really like that mind, that shift in frame and to help communicators understand you're already doing many of these things. Practice the method, practice that approach. Now switch when the time comes and, and you'll be ready to move at the speed that allows you to control narrative. Yeah, I really like that. And I'm wondering what you think of the idea of having influencers or your your brand creators as part of part of the team, the crisis communication potential team, because they're already advocating for your brand. They already understand your brand. They love your brand. They're you know part of your brand culture, and I think that that's an example of that maybe brands don't think of as part of the crisis communication could be having the influencers and creators that are going to be part of your your team in case something happens. Can be quite effective. Here's my experience with influencers. You have to, in times of crisis, tell them what to say. In promotional activity, 
you typically want them to lead the way. You want their, their voice to be more authentic, right? In crisis, they're no different than most people. They freeze up. And so you want to gather those voices and say, here, give them some special attention. Here are the words that we're saying to our stakeholders. Here's what we would like you to know. And if you feel like you lead us through this, then these are the words that you can say that are honest and true and ethical for our brand. Yeah, I love that. And and it just what percentage of brands do you think think of this example of bringing the influencers into the, the strategy? Fewer than 1%. <laughs> it seems so obvious, right? <laughs> it seems well, very, yeah. The interesting part about the reputation game is that you have a lot of lawyers in the room at once and they are very risk averse. Mm-hmm. They're doing everything they can to minimize risk. And the fewer people talking, the better in their mind. And so it's a different mindset. It's a different kind of environment to work in. I think too, that it might simply be about timing in the crisis when you really need to control narrative, you might want to err on the side of moving the influencers out just a bit, let them give them some breathing room so that you don't pull them into the fire with you. Once you're generally out of the hot zone, so to speak, then it's time to bring them in and allow them to be ambassadors for you. But it's sort of hard for them. They're not owners of your brand. They don't work for you generally. I mean, they sometimes accept monetary contributions, so to speak, but they are independent of your brand. So giving them a little bit of breathing room is not a bad idea. That might mean that after control of the narrative is established, after there's an understanding of how, what, where, why things happened, and it's not nefarious, influencers are likely to be ready to support a brand activity. The lawyers are also kind of ready to let go at that point. That makes sense. So with PR, you can't really put a predicted price on what the outcome will be of, let's just say, putting out positive PR. So you can't say, okay, you know, predicting I'm going to get this article in USA Today, or I'm going to get the big win in Forbes or Fortune. It's just one of those things that comes along with earned media. They just have to be very dedicated and consistent and have it always be on. And with crisis communication, you can't predict the damage that a crisis is going to cause when it comes to reputation management and like the damaging headlines and news that's out there. So my question is, do you ever recommend you know, I'm sure a brand would be like, they'll pay any amount of money to get out of this situation, right? They'll pay any amount of money to take an ad out and say, this is how, this is exactly what happened and just make it go away. So does paid ever come into the play of crisis communication where they're making a statement, taking out an ad in the New York Times? I've seen, you know, certain things, you know, happen that way, but where does paid come into play in, in your opinion? Well, paint's tricky. I think mm-hmm. that it's generally viewed as low authenticity. Mm-hmm. And so you use it when you are ready to talk about the corrective actions that you are taking and what you're doing to prevent a situation, name the situation, from happening again. And so I think that's one of the 
ways that pay can be very effective. But if you're still trying to argue your case and the media narrative has already passed you by, uh, I don't think pay can be very effective. And so you just have to be, you have to have a perfect touch with it in order to use it to restore reputation. And I think that's where it, it's most effective in that restoration part versus in defending a situation where you, you have high culpability. Yeah. And I just want to point out that, you know, paid also has a lower authenticity than PR does, whether, you know, on, on the positive side. And I just can't help but, you know, bring this up that it just, you know, when I see brands pouring tons of money on the paid side of digital and then saying there's no budget for PR, you know, that's, that's a decision, but they're also not investing in that organic earned media side that really is the most authentic and the most credible and in the long run is going to bring them the, the best results that you can't buy. It's true. And you used a magic word there, earned. Reputations are earned. They are built. They are not bought. And so paid has limitations. And I think that's a, you've touched on a really uh, core attribute of the kind of work we could do, not only on the PR side, media relations component, but the social side, especially. You earn that every day by interacting with your stakeholders. And some days it's not as fun as others, but you got to just keep in there and you're earning your right to have voice and to have authority. Totally agree. And just curious if you could give advice on for brands and also PR professionals, digital marketers, entrepreneurs that might be listening, you know, public relations is such a broad category. Crisis communication is one vertical. How do brands and how do professionals and how do you stay in the know of what the best practices are, what, what the te latest technology is? And, you know, you know, if you graduate with a degree in PR, let's just say 10 years ago, and you haven't been keeping up, you're behind, right? How do you, what do you, what do you recommend to, to stay in touch with the best practices of today? I do like, and sometimes get the privilege to advise young people who are going into PR programs at university, or even just graduating from them. I always encourage them because I say, your degree unlike many others, is a Swiss army knife. You have so many different tools at your disposal and um, you can flip out the scissors or flip out the blade or flip out the screwdriver whenever you need to. So PR people in my experience have always had that unique capability to adapt and adjust on the fly. You're right though, you've got to stay sharp and you've got to continuously sharpen those tools in that Swiss army knife. There's no right answer for any particular person. There's no wrong answer. But the way that I spend my time and invest in that is uh, really in the spectrum of activity. I think you can focus on a particular specialization. For example, I love to think and read and study message, how it's developed, how it's conveyed influence and persuasion. And I just keep investing in that one attribute. I get through the virtue of my colleagues, updates on the new channels and the new tools and, you know, all of the new platforms, et cetera. I listen for that. 
And I'm reading the ad age and PR week on a regular basis. Those are really important go-to tools just to, just to get a broad view of it. But I also encourage a sort of a T-shaped approach to the career. On the wide side, yes, get your industry publications. You can even on the PR, in, in PR specific, study for your APR designation. Not a bad thing to do. That's the top of the T. That's the wide part. But then pick a deep part and really become an expert in that deep T. Message has been it for me. You can be a methods. You can be a messenger expert. We've got one here in my shop. Well, much of his work is training people how to be good spokespersons. And so he's a messenger expert. I've always loved that about people when I can find a symmetrical T. They have a wide top and a deep bottom. I love that. And for those of you listening, um, you can't see the visual behind Jeff, but he has all kinds of books back there on his bookshelf. And I'm just wondering, do you have any favorite books that you want to recommend that you've recently read or just that you've gone back and reread, whether it's in the industry or not? Robert Cialdini is one of my personal hero gurus, but he's a psychologist, a social scientist in a different uh, par- in a different field. I think he's done so much in the world of messaging to help PR people though, because he talks about the six ways of persuading. And it was, I read Cialdini and he's got a brand new release of his old book out. It's just now out. So I'm back into it looking at new case studies, new examples. And he talks about six ways to persuade. And really for three different reasons or three different motivations. I read that for the first time and I kind of, I threw it on my desk and said, why didn't somebody tell me? You know, I'm 20 years into my career and finally the gates are opened up and I've loved Cialdini's perspectives, his research orientation. It's made so much sense to me. And you'll find others who are mimicking him, like Jonah Berger just put out a new book maybe a year ago, I guess. Very, very similar. But to me, Robert Cialdini is one of those adjacent kind of scientists that PR people can really learn from. So check out his book, Influence, The Art of Persuasion. Definitely. We'll put that in the show notes to a link to that. And, uh, you know, we've had a tough couple years being in lockdown with the pandemic. Everybody's on Zoom. Everybody's on digital more than ever before. Do you have any tips, any digital detox secrets on how you kind of keep your balance and keep your sanity in today's world? I wish I did. (laughs) No, really. I think every person has to approach it at their own rate and speed. What I have come to appreciate, I think, is that it's one person and one prescription. Some people might respond very well to ex- ex- more exercise or more yoga or s- some healthy expression f- from a physical standpoint. Others, you know, I'll even include myself. I'm an introvert at heart. And so have I minded being more isolated? (laughs) Not really. I've been okay with that. And I think everyone has come to it in their own way. I will say though, I, in the moments in time when I've been able to be out and amongst people again, and, you know, safe and controlled environments, I've really enjoyed it. So 
I sure get why people are anxious to be through this period. And I reckon that, especially for our discipline, we're going to need a couple, three years to look back and see what the effect has been. Because not only on the practice, but the practitioners. And I don't know what that's going to be yet, but I suspect that there's a generation of PR practitioners that will point to this moment as the defining crisis of their lifetime. And it will be something that creates a framework for them to view, a lens through which they will view all work going forward. Fascinating time, fascinating set of issues. Yeah, we can call it the pandemic PR revolution. (laughs) Right on. Hey, right now it's a good time to be a PR person ready to explore new opportunities because the job market is super hot and the Swiss Army knife capability and career that people have in our craft are it's valuable and and brands are understanding that more and more so true well those are very wise words to end on i really appreciate your time jeff and sharing all the crisis communication secrets and more and love your point of view on so many things i think we have a lot of um insights in common here and hopefully you can be on the show again and come back and give us an update on what's happening maybe in the next six months or a year and what's changed. For sure. And if any of your listeners, Lisa, would like a copy of the book, I have a few hundred advanced reader copies that I'm making available at no charge. You can go to breakingbadnewsbook.com. See that. You'll see my author page. Just sign up, put your name in there, and I'll get a book shipped off to you. Let's all do it. I'm definitely going to do it. I can't wait. Thank you so much for sharing that with the listeners. And I really appreciate it and look forward to catching up with you. Absolutely. Thanks very much. I enjoyed being here. listening to this episode of Social PR Secrets. If you like what you heard, check out the book on Amazon or follow our blog at socialprsecrets.com. This episode was sponsored by The Buyer Group, a social PR agency striving to keep our balance in the digital world, practicing public relations, social media, and search marketing, while occasionally drinking a glass of wine or two for the best creativity and results. Thank you all for tuning in. If you would like to get a free chapter of Social PR Secrets, go to socialprsecrets.com slash free.